Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Indefensible Plants podcast, the official podcast of indefensibleplants.com. What's up? This is your host, Matt. Welcome to the show. How is everyone doing this week? I'm doing great because we are talking about one of the coolest ecosystems in North America, and that is the spruce fir forests of high elevation areas of the Appalachian mountain chain. Joining us to talk about this is Kelly Holdbrooks from the Southern Highlands Reserve, and their efforts to restore red spruce are inspirational. I'm going to let her detail why this tree is so cool and why the ecosystem it comprises is so important. And of course, all of the amazing efforts going in to ensure it has a future on our planet. But I can't emphasize enough that restoration like this is not only necessary, but it is a group effort. It can't be done in silos. And the more we work together, the better off nature will be. Before I get to that, I just want to say, if you enjoy the In Defense of Plants podcast, consider supporting it because I literally couldn't be doing this without support. There are a lot of great ways to do that, but one of the best is to become a patron over at patreon.com slash plants. For a little financial support each month, I'm talking less than a couple cups of coffee, you get some great kickbacks and you keep the show up and running. So thank you to everyone that supports it through Patreon and all of the other ways to support the show. Just check the show notes over at indefensiveplants.com slash podcast to find all the other ways you can do that. But thank you. I couldn't be doing this without you. All right, that is entirely enough out of me. I can't wait for you to hear this conversation. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Kelly Holdbrooks. I hope you enjoy. All right, Kelly Holdbrooks, welcome to the podcast. It is an honor to have you here. I'm really excited to talk to you. But for those that aren't familiar with your work, let's start off with an introduction. Tell everyone a little bit about who you are and what it is you do. Absolutely. Well, thank you. It's um, a great honor just to be here and to talk about plants, first of all. Um, As you said, my name is Kelly Holdbrooks. I'm the executive director of the Southern Highlands Reserve. Um, For those of you that don't know, the Southern Highlands Reserve is a private, nonprofit native plant garden located at an elevation of 4,500 feet, which is considered high elevation for our purposes. Sure. <laughs> um, and we focus um, on species 2,500 and above in elevation. And um, I've been in Western North Carolina for 20, over 20 years. Wow. I'm originally from Chattanooga. Okay. Um, so, so I'm a Southeast girl. Um, I went to undergrad uh, in Tennessee at Rhodes College. Nice. And um, then I got my master's at the University of Georgia College of Environment and Design in Landscape Architecture. Excellent. Well, you've said a lot of really cool things there, a lot of my favorite things, to be honest with you. But I mean, throughout this process, has it always been plant focused or were you kind of just really into nature and wanted to do something in that realm? Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, you know, this, this, this life and this, this journey that we're on, I, Hmm. I think that it has always been plant focused and it's always been nature based. Um, you know, I am a, I'm a kid born in the mid seventies. And so, you know, if you were quote unquote, you know, smart or could test well or yada, 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 they just gave you that. They're like, you're going to be a doctor or a lawyer. (laughs) So yeah. I just followed my marching orders <laughs> all, the, all the way to to undergrad. And then I got there and I was like, wait a second, I do not need to be a doctor. Like this is not a good fit for me. And so I just, I said, I'll do environmental law. Mm. And I got an undergrad in political science and international studies and was planning on getting out and studying and going to law school. And I just couldn't do it. And I'm not that kind of a personality. I'm more of a, you know, say I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it. And so I said, you know what, I'm going to pay attention to this and I'm just going to work for a little bit and see what really sparks my passion. Um, So, you know, I went out to Yellowstone. Yellowstone was my first job um, out of college. Love that. And then I did a bunch of traveling and then ended up in Asheville, North Carolina. But there are two distinct memories from childhood that I can trace back now as to why I wanted to do landscape architecture. Ooh. Um, the first one, actually, I wrote about a little bit in um, a book. And it is, so I was born in June. 
And so the following year in June, my grandmother and my mom always did a, a huge vegetable garden. My grandmother had an wow. extra lot and they put me at the end of the row and just gave me a spoon <laughs> and they would just plant to me in the row and then move me down one. And I, my mom said I would just, I was there all day, just like digging in the dirt, like happy nice. as a lark. Um, so I think that I just like being outside. I like being in nature. Um, I think most people do, even if they're not exposed to it. I think it's kind of built into our DNA. Um, but the other one was when I was 12 and we lived what would at that time be out in the country in Chattanooga. Now it is suburbia. <laughs> Um, and you know, I'm talking no street lights, you know, two lane roads hadn't been paved, you oh. know, it was just like a great place to grow up as a kid woods everywhere. Yeah. And then they built a mall. No. And I remember being really, really upset to see patches of forest and, you know, what I know now is habitat mm. be removed and it to be urban sprawl yeah. so i think that really kind of like sparked something in me so right on and, yeah. and what a journey it's been honestly and and now you know it's fortuitous that you're actually in a position where something can be done right or at least attempts to nullify or, or repair some of the damages you know we've seen it everywhere i think a lot of people listening can empathize with a similar story of some sort. I grew up rural. It's not so rural anymore. And yeah, whether you can articulate it as habitat or not, I mean, that's where things live, whether that's the plants that support the biosphere or the rest of the biosphere. Absolutely. Yeah, I do. I mean, it's really easy to get on, on that treadmill of life. Yeah. And for all the things that were horrible about the pandemic, that was one of the silver linings for me mm. was I was able to really evaluate um, that little treadmill I'd gotten myself on and really start to, you know, focus Fox on what I, what I really wanted my time and energy to be in. Nice. Yeah. I mean, kudos finding a silver lining in an event quite like that. Uh, an unprecedented one is always a good thing. And, you know, here you are, you're in one of the most beautiful places in the world, biased opinion, of course, but Thank you. <laughs> and you're doing incredible work. Like this idea of working on not only a native plant garden, but also one that's, you know, able to specialize to the degree that yours does. I mean, is that by accident or really like by a, a large picture sort of design that you can have that niche? Yeah, I mean, that that's a really good question. And I think I think it's both, to be completely honest. Cool. I think the vision and the mission um, was very, um, you know, wanting to to take on something bigger than itself. Um, you know, ideally we'd like to have every plant that's located in the great Smokies <laughs> National Park. So that's a pretty hefty yeah. goal. Um, but, um, but I think that you have to have, you know, the saying of like, you know, sh um, shoot for the stars and, you know, um, and, and see where you land is, is really, really important aspect to keep that we lose as we get older. Mm. So I think the vision and the mission was there. Um, and I was, a, I'm the second director. There was a founding director. Um, that shift was building, was a lot of construction mm -hmm. and a lot of building. Um, so I'm really happy that that wasn't my phase. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> I mean, here I am about to build a greenhouse. So right. I don't what to say. Um, <laughs> but, um, I'm more oriented towards, um, partnerships and mm. seeing the broader view and seeing how we fit things in and and what um, niche we would fall into. So when I got there, um, you know, they'd done a strategic planning process and I was going through the list and, you know, trying to figure out what we had accomplished and what we needed to work on. And, you know, just really held a important meeting called a nominal group technique, which mm. is sort of a precursor to a strategic planning process and it's just a general SWOT analysis and everybody's um, ideas and questions are valued and you just throw everything against the wall. Um, and we were really able to figure out what we want to be when we grow up <laughs> and, what we do, <laughs> and what we do well and how to do that. And, you know, one of those is restoration projects. I mean, we have the ability to grow really unique species. We, we have the ability to figure it out. Um, we're just like these little plant nerds <laughs> up on this 
laptop and, you know, geeking out. And, um, and one thing happened after another was a lot of serendipity played into that. You know, I mean, I was there, I got hired full time in 2012. Nice. I got an email in 2013 saying, Hey, if you're interested in spruce restoration, show up in Asheville. And I thought, well, I should go to this since we're growing them. (laughs) And it, the last 10 years is just, yeah, skyrocketed. It's amazing how that can happen, uh, often in what feels like a blink of an eye. But, you know, before we really get into the meat of why we're talking today, this idea of restoration, especially for a garden and a reserve, you know, I think it's really encouraging to see sort of the next step going on because historically it's kind of been gardens are either just a place for respite and and really showcasing beauty. Still should be, right? But this idea that you move beyond this sort of stamp collection, let's have a few individuals just to showcase the diversity of an area, to kind of showcase these things in a a different kind of more cultivated setting, to really thinking about how can we get some of this back out there, right? Because it's not enough to protect these rare things behind closed doors, so to speak, not that you're not open to to enjoy them, but to to do something to put them back on the landscape is a pretty powerful sort of movement that you, really I think in the last few decades is where a lot of gardens should be going or or kind of are positioning themselves for that. Yeah, absolutely. I agree 100%. Um I mean, to have the impact on the land that is quote unquote your garden is one thing. I think that's just like bare minimum what you should be doing <laughs> as an organization. But if you can get involved and really increase your impact on a local regional national scale i mean that's where the sweet sauce is and i'm really pumped about the future um, of conservation and Mm -hmm. how public private partnerships is sort of the new norm and um you know i say this a lot among friends and staff but it's not ego it's we go (laughs) i like that yeah, I mean, it's so, you know, and you know, you've, you've done um, post-doctorate um, work. You know how it goes where everyone's like clamoring for funding. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to share what I've done because then someone else might get my funding. And, I, I, you know, I think that's the old, yeah. the old way. And, and so that gives me a lot of hope for what we can do as humans. I mean, just hearing that someone in your position has hope and and is like jazzed on the future is encouraging because I think too often we get stuck in sort of the doom spiral and there's a lot of doom granted. But, you know, I don't think any of us would be in the field we're in if we didn't think something, even if it was a small thing, could be done about it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I I would be lying if I wasn't scared at times and had my (laughs) moments where I was like, whoa, this is really getting, you know, sideways real quick. Um, but at the end of the day, I'm a, a girl that believes in half glass full and I'm going to keep going until I can't go anymore. Right on. Good to hear. And glad to have you talking to us, of course, with that mentality. But, you know, you mentioned it. Spruce. Not any spruce either. Red spruce. Picea rubens. Uh, an awesome species to rally behind. Not, you know, but story aside, a gymnosperm. Yes. Awesome. Like, let's give some gymnosperms some love. But why this species? Like, there's a lot of things going on in Southern Appalachia. It's a very diverse area when it comes to plants. What made red spruce stand out to this organization? Yeah, um, we are really focused on trees because we're a woodland garden, <laughs> and you know the forest that we in, that is pretty much the majority of our forest right now is a succession mm. forest. Um, it probably would have been chestnut oak, chestnut. Um, before it was harvested uh, for whatever reason. And so now we're dealing with a lot of maples that aren't really happy there. And, mm. um, you know, and, and, and a lot of oaks, um, chestnuts, you know, that's yeah. just done for a while. Um, so we're really focused on what kind of impact we could make with trees. Mm. And so we just started um, playing around and seeing if we could grow stuff. And, then, you know, this organization, SASRI, S-A-S-R-I, which stands for Southern Appalachian Spruce Restoration Initiative. Hmm. Um, I know. God, <laughs> I really hope to get a new acronym or name at some point. But you nailed um, it, though. That was yes. great. <laughs> Thank you. Um, yeah, uh, was born in 2013. And that was um, sort of, a, you know, for lack of a better time, uh, better term, a cattle call to those that were aware of what was going on with our spruce fir forest 
Um, and, you know, I'll throw a bunch of data points at you guys um, that will help build, build the picture for you. Um, ideally, you know, in the higher elevation, so 5,000 and above, the spruce fir forests were considered dominant um, forest type mm. all up and down the Appalachian spine. And then what we refer to in the Southern Apps is the big cut, which is around the turn of century and, you know, all in the name of progress, right. our virgin forest was cut down. Um, it decimated the spruce fir forest. And then there were a couple of other events that just kind of was the nail in the coffin. You know, there was a couple of um, terrible torrential rains that eroded the seed profile. Mm. And then there were a couple of fires that broke out. Actually, one from a railroad, because they had railroads up there to get the lumber out, which is kind of mind-blowing yes. to think about. Wow. Think about a railroad track up on the where the Blue Ridge Parkway is. Ugh. I mean, yeah, the being there, let alone building it. Whew. Yeah, it's just kind of mind-blowing to think about. But this one fire broke out, and it um, burned for a month. Whoa. And that's actually how Graveyard Fields got its name, is the old stumps from the spruce that were cut down were burned. And it, when the fire was finally out, they looked they resembled grapes. Oh, wow. I had actually never put that together. That's amazing. So all that led to this species being in what we refer to as islands in the sky, these little pockets that are fragmented from the original forest. Wow. And over 100 years, they haven't been able to rebound on their own. So we have to get involved if we want to see them um, get better and enlarge. And the red spruce, this is going to not sound, this is going to be kind of on the depressing side, but oh, no. I think it's awesome. The red spruce is our best hope. Hmm. It is known as the least in decline conifer. Okay. So um, we are also growing some Fraser fir. We have not been asked to grow any Fraser fir for restorations, but we like to get ahead of the curve sure. and see if we're able to do things. Um, but we've been focused on red spruce because we have a 90% survival rate on our restoration plantings. Wow. And we have a 90 two or 98% germination rate. Um, so, you know, you kind of want to do what you're good at um, and, and, and attack those low hanging fruit projects, which to date has, I know, been held up. The bigger projects have been held up by NEPA, but we're about to, we're working on that. So we got about 6,000 plants planted on public land, wow. residential trees. That's excellent. I mean, it's not nothing, right? This is, yeah, that's a lot yeah. of trees. <laughs> it is. I mean, I really think that you know, modeling after the Longleaf Pine Project. I mean, that's that's where our, our frame of mind needs to be. Like, we need to come at this from a landscape scale. You know, and there's a lot of questions. What's going to happen with climate change? Uh, you know, the modeling doesn't look pretty for anything. No. Um, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't still try to increase these habitats. Right. Right. And talk about sort of recency bias. I mean, I've only known I'm not 100 years old, right? So I don't know what high elevation Southern Appalachia could have looked like. I only know what it looks like now. And it's still beautiful. But to hear those stories, to know what once was, even a glimmer of what that could have been, is alarming. But I also kind of love the idea of going after sort of what you said, sort of low-hanging fruit or best hope. Because, you know, whether it's spruce or fir, it's a foundational species for an ecosystem and and quite an ecosystem when you really start to tease apart the intricacies of it absolutely yeah that's exactly it um it, it is and i mean we refer to it as a keystone species and you know i, I love that this is an in defense of plants podcast because <laughs> those you know sasri is comprised of a lot of different um professions. There's silviculturalists, wildlife biologists, you know, just kind of all over the the map of, of professions, but everybody's concerned. And, and I think that's super cool. And also it gives me hope. Um, but, you know, inside at SHR, we kind of chuckle and we're saying, well, we finally got some support from the federal government when they identified a federally listed squirrel. Mm. But you know, and it's like it's, it's. I think it's interesting as a culture and as a society how we put so much um, emphasis on animals yeah. 
not necessarily on plants. I think it's personally, I think it's backwards yeah. because plants, <laughs> we can't have the animals, but you know, right. it is what it is. I mean, that's the point I try to harp on any chance anyone gives me a soapbox to stand on is plants are that habitat, right? When you think about anything you care about in the natural world, it needs a place to live. Plants comprise that, right? I mean, there's an extent you can argue for geology and all that, but like it really is the the the, the first tier of that biological ecosystem. Absolutely. And that includes humans. Um, yeah. You know, even though we think that we somehow um, we're outside of that, we're not. Um, you know, and, and one other cool thing about this whole forest type is, you know, it moved down here ahead of the last ice age. These species move, it, it, they literally crawled down the Appalachia spine ahead of the glaciers wow. um, for the, so they wouldn't be extinct. And then, you know, so I, I take that very seriously with some of the species that we have on the mountain, um, more than just red spruce, but, you know, they came down here so that they would not go extinct. And, you know, we're talking about geological time that humans can't even right. conceptual. Yeah. Our flora is so much older than our species. It's it's hard to really put that across because we even when we see plants, we're thinking very anthropocentric, how they're used, what they can feed us with, that kind of thing. And that's fine too, right? Like whatever gets you into it. But yeah, to think about th this relict ecosystem that was chased down here by the glaciers and what it means today to try to put some of that back. And I think that kind of lends to a little bit about how you introduced Southern Highlands is this idea of it being at elevation where the temperature, the microclimate, all of it combines to kind of give them this last vestige of, you know, you get into lower elevations, even in the Smokies and it's angiosperm dominated. It's hyper diverse under, I mean, it's a temperate rainforest, right? And so to go up to the ele higher elevations, to me, it's like growing up near Canada. You're like, whoa, that's weirdly familiar. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I know. And, you know, there's been back and forth about that within Sazri, you know, because ideally we need other people to grow the plants. Yeah. You know, I mean, we don't need to be the only the the only show in town. Um, that's not sustainable. Um, but what other high elevation nurseries can we reach out to? Um, there are a few state run, but state funding has cut that. And so, you know, it's this whole Sudoku of how do, how do we really get at capacity where we can make make it an impact on the region great analogy there but yeah it, it, this niche is so important both as for the species but for the restoration process so let's talk about the red spruce a little bit more i mean why is it that it is so difficult to grow i mean what sets this tree apart from say you know the maples that came back after logging or something to that effect Hmm. Yeah, this, okay. I'll try to do this from two different angles. All right. So for you and I know this forest because we've walked in it and for the listeners that haven't, I um, highly recommend mm -hmm. a spruce fir forest has a feel to it, has a smell to it. But I think what is most evident for the propagation is when you walk in a spruce fir forest, it has a spongy feel to it and i think that you know to put that into scientific terms that's the soil profile yeah um so that's what that species prefers needs um so i think that's one of the parts of it and then the other part i think is also kind of cracking the code mm. on what's really going on um and that just took trial and error um, you know, we, uh, we try to mimic the natural processes of the world. And so we'll warm up, um, the cones to release the seeds. Um, and we'll also, um, cold stratify them for 30 days nice. to increase our germination rate. Um, and then we just do the, you know, the age old process of, um, you know, playing, playing God or, play, <laughs> you know, playing the divine and, uh, and do sunshine for extended hours and a little bit of heat on a mat. And within 10 to 14 days, you've got germination. Wow. And high rates from what you had previously mentioned there. That's exciting, at least. Um, and I'm truly a firm believer in the to know it you got to grow it, right? And what better way to learn about an organism than to 
experience it throughout its entire life cycle and, and really see how different life stages might behave or not behave, that kind of thing. But the soils part is also fascinating because the only time previously on this podcast we've talked about it was through the context of soils. And this goes back to the logging. You get rid of the trees that were holding the soil. The soil gets washed away, whether that's a cataclysmic rainfall event or over time, and then it's gone, right? It's not like you just go and sprinkle some topsoil back on there. And and that's where these sort of alternate stable states really kind of become terrifying because once it's gone, sometimes it's gone for a very long time until someone tries whatever they can to bring it back. Absolutely. You know, and, and we've played around with our different mixes and, you know, have specialty soil mixes where we, um, you know, it's not potting soil, clearly, um, <laughs> using like um, um, fines from from pine bark and, you know, highly acidic. And then we'll inoculate with mycelium and add some lime, um, you know, just kind of doing all that we can to give it its its best first start. You know, another great breakthrough on our end was our director of horticulture, uh, Eric Kimbrell, came across a uh, pot called Root Maker. You might be familiar with it. Uh, this gentleman, I want to say in Alabama, has the patent on this. Huh. It's a really cool pot. And I, know, I mean, like, <laughs> we're really getting like nerdy here. This is um, where we so, do it. So yeah. please have at it. <laughs> so it, um, if you could visualize an upside down wedding cake, so okay. it's kind of it's like tiered, right? And then at each one of those tiers, there are several holes um, where the roots can go out and then they hit the air, get root pruned. And so you don't have that one hole in the bottom of the pot where everything wants to go down and then circles. So it creates this robust root system that has allowed us to shave off a year of propagation, which is huge when you're going from seed. And also I think it is one of the biggest reasons why we have such a high success rate with our restoration projects is, you know, these plant, these restoration sites are four, 10, 15, 20 miles into the forest, not an easy <laughs> way to get there. And so once they get planted, they're pretty much on their own. Um, so we're not planting seedlings. We're planting mature trees um, because we're planting in a mixed um, deciduous forest. Mm. And so that's one of the reasons why the red spruce regeneration has not happened is it's getting suppressed by the big leaf drop from the maples and the birch. So we have to have a mature tree that has that central leader that has the ability, the viscosity to just like bend and pop back up when it has, you know, six inches of red maples being dropped on it. Dang. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. It's wild to think that, but also makes sense too, when you really do get into it is this idea that if it loves microclimates in nature, you got to figure out that microclimate trying to grow it and having a more robust mature tree really that to put out there is always going to be advantageous. But to think about sort of the uphill battle of the, the current context, right? Like what is holding things back? I know in the Midwest, for instance, like mesification, why it, are, are the forests changing? Well, all these maples, because fire's not there anymore, are filling in the understory. It makes the soils wetter than they historically were. And then that favors more maple seedlings and not necessarily the other trees that you're aiming to restore. So it sounds like a lot of intelligent tinkering has to go on because, you know, often the pace of standardized research is not fast enough for the efforts that you're trying to make. So, you know, intelligent tinkering, you got to learn somehow, right? Absolutely. And, you know, we work with all of these partners within SASRI to monitor these plantings. I mean, I'm not going out and doing it. I don't, I don't have the time. I mean, I would love to hike out and do it, but it's not within my job description. So uh, we rely on our partners to really monitor and give us feedback on that. Wow! And we play around with some of the plantings. You know, if we've got extra trees um, and the silviculturalist is like, hey, I've got this like spot that I could, da, 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 you know, we'll, we'll plant in the full sun. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's this process is it's going to be our lifetime. Sure. And, and I'm fully committed to it. But, you know, I, I say this straight out to everybody planting trees is sexy and everybody (laughs) wants to get behind it and it's it's a feel-good story but the truth of the matter is is um there's gonna have to be some other 
restoration technical techniques mm. used in the Southern Alps if we are going to save this rare forest type. Um, you know, a lot of these trees that we're planting now, the U.S. Forest Service is going to is committed to going back and doing canopy release because a spruce won't push up through a deciduous forest. They'll just hang out there. Mm. And so you eventually you have to come in and like give them that release and give them a shot at, at shooting up. Yeah, it's a lot to consider. And I'm, I'm happy you sort of brought up this idea of tree planting because it is a sexy thing right now. Everyone wants to get behind it. And, you know, we'll save the debate on carbon sequestration and stuff for a different episode. But to me, it's right tree, right place, right concept. Right. And this is to me a really good effort. But it also just goes to show you the amount of energy that went into undoing these ecosystems it's not a just set back and let nature take its course it knows what it's doing it's if we want this ecosystem to survive it needs a lot of energy input to make it possible it's not just go put them out there they'll be fine they know what they're doing absolutely um yeah we have to be involved um every step of the way to sort of you know try to try to tie back what's been torn apart yeah and so I'm just trying to picture this process. When you say mature tree, I mean, what size trees are you bringing out to these places? Sometimes, like you said, tens of miles into the woods. <laughs> so uh, one gallon um, is the is the pot size. And then the trees are anywhere from 18 inches to 24 inches. Oh, wow. On the central leader. So good, good size little tree. Um, and we had a thousand um, were planted in Virginia last October. And some of those trees were five and six years old. We ended up having to hold some trees over in the nursery because a NEPA um, on a project got held up. And mm. so luckily we were able to find another project to get them in the ground because they were a lot happier yeah. in the ground than in those pots. Let me tell you that. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, that had to be a nerve wracking waiting period. <laughs> Absolutely. So one of the things that we've been focused on to increase the capacity, uh, you know, we had a meeting with some uh, with a forest supervisor and the and the deputy over a year ago, myself and some other um, people within SASRI. And they said, well, what do you guys really need if we were to ask you to grow 50,000 trees? And we said, well, we're going to need a bigger facility. Currently, we have two 20 year old use two houses they're doing a phenomenal job yeah. it clearly cannot do, produce on that level and we need some you know the pen to get involved and for us to get think about region-wide nepa clearance for spruce fir forest restoration like let's quit making us pick apart this project by project yeah yeah i mean it really does have to take a, a village so to speak or multiple villages sometimes crossing borders to do it but where do you even begin to find the seeds for that, right? Because all of this has to come from a seed. <laughs> so where does that yeah. start? Oh, yeah. Yeah, We that was another thing we did. We um, we created a cone collection policy within the organization. Oh. You know, a Sazri is grassroots. I mean, we yeah. built it, um, all of us, you know, working our full-time jobs and then committing certain amount of hours to Sazri, um whenever we can. But we came up with restoration criteria, historic mapping, um, we're getting ready to do historic mapping again. It's been about 10 years, so mm. technology is advanced. Let's take another stab at that. Um, but the cone collection policy um, came about um, uh, after 2013. 2013 was our last bumper crop. Mm. And uh, two wildlife biologists collected over 100 bags like Whoa. big brown grocery bags of cones and brought them to the southern highlands reserve because we didn't have a process for it at that point and so staff and volunteers thank goodness we are close to visitation in the winter and and are looking for inside activities because it's so cold but we <laughs> about 120 hours extra manually extracting the seed from those cones and wow. then storing them wow so we were like, oh man, we need a we need some policies, we need some protocols, we need to figure this out. So with a couple other partners in SASRI, we created cone collection guidelines. Hmm. And right now everyone within their sky islands should be out scouting to see what the crop looks like, 
and then also within a committee called the Restoration Technical Community Committee in SASRI, um, people are talking about what projects are in the pipeline and what's in going down the road. Um, and so, you know, we need a couple years notice <laughs> if you want these for a site. Yeah. So, so there's all these different pieces in, involved with it. Um, but it's kind of neat. I mean, there's now within SASRI every fall a organization wide permit where you can go out and collect cones on behalf of SASRI. I think that's pretty breakthrough, yeah. you know, whereas before you just had to rely on a certain amount of agencies and God forbid, but it did happen. We had a government shutdown during one of the own collection and that was a little scary. Yeah. But, so, yeah, I mean, it truly does take a village. And I mean that there, there's a, another really cool silver lining to all of that is the fact that people can get involved. It's not done behind closed doors. I mean, obviously there's a lot of different groups already involved with this, but to have a hand, even if it's going and collecting cones in the restoration of not just a species, but an ecosystem it's pretty powerful stuff. It is. And, you know, citizen scientists and other concerned people in the community are all a part of SASRI. It's not just organizations. And the planting days, hmm. volunteers really get excited about that. Um, <laughs> and, and, it's, and it's a lot of fun. It's sort of, you know, like a, you know, a feel good moment to work with a community college to let, you know, let the, these future foresters can plant trees and the biologists are out there mapping it all out and there's, you know, 10 or 20 of us literally schlepping trees up and down a trail for hours. Yeah. But the, uh, the calves are getting a good workout and then some, but <laughs> you know, how, how are these sites chosen? I, I it's obviously got to be through a, a group process there, but what makes a good site as it currently stands and what kind of areas do you think need to be opened up in the future? Mm, this is a little outside of what I do within SASRI, oh, but I can speak, yeah, but I can speak to the partners I've worked with. Sure. I, I know the biologists I've worked with are specifically trying to increase habitat for the Carolina Northern flying squirrel, ah. which is a feathered species. Okay. Um, and then there are a few other projects that are bigger within the forest service, the U S forest service that they're looking at working on with the new forest plan. So really trying to take, I know spruce fir forest and high elevation species are pretty high on the list for them to work with um, and resilience. Um, so I think those are going to be the target areas, you That's know, and, you know, we're talking like nuts and bolts about ecosystems and species, but I also want to remind people that there are millions of people they come to this area to go hiking yeah. and they don't even know that they are in a spruce fir forest or that they are looking at a spruce fir forest. So there's a, there's a region wide economic driver within the Blue Ridge Parkway and these sky islands. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I mean, if you're on the Blue Ridge during the summer, it is crawling with people and that's, you know, for better, for worse sometimes, but man, I mean, the tourism draw, you think of the Smokies, some high elevation spots in the Smokies are like the biggest spots for photographs and stuff like that. So whether people realize it or not, uh, that is very true. The economic driver of ecotourism is nothing to balk at, but I shamefully myself first year doing work in that was just, I took it for granted. Cause again, I grew up near Canada. Unfortunately, Norway spruce plantations are all too familiar for me. So I was just kind of like, Oh cool. Yeah. Conifer force. And then I realized what they were and the shame set in and I've been like, <laughs> <laughs> trying to repay the ecosystem ever since. So yeah, I mean, whether you realize it or not, the draw of these ecosystems, it, it's, it's, it's nothing to scoff at. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, there, it's, 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 it's a, like a magnet almost. And then when the fall color comes in and you've got that deep, dark evergreen that really pops the fall color of everything, it's just, um, it's perfect. Yeah. Now at the reserve, when you have visitors, the other side of this is kind of opening people's eyes to it because if I was ignorant, many, many, many more people are as well. And so there's got to be a communication campaign. And do you see sort of the lights turning on when, when, when you start discussing just the rarity of this ecosystem, the importance of it and the restoration efforts? Absolutely. Um, cause we can show them cones and then we can show them these little tiny seedlings and then we walk them around the gardens and we show them different sizes of spruce that we've planted. 
And, you know, you're just telling these stories over and over again, and you never know what moment or what word is going to spark that aha moment in another person. Um, And, you know, we end all tours down at the nursery so they can see our propagation. And there's an area on the core park. uh, It's called the view site, but it has a 60 mile view towards the Blue Ridge Parkway. And on a clear day, you can see the spruce fir forest at the very top of those mountains. And you can point that out to people. So you can, there's multiple opportunities to paint the story and, um, you know, talk about what happened and what we need to do. And, you know, I try to lead from um, a shame-free environment. And I, we only, we, we only know what we know. Yeah, and we can only do the best with what we know, and you know that to us we're like, oh my god, they cut down the virgin forest. What were they thinking? Well, they were thinking progress. They were thinking, yeah. I, I need, you know, I need X, Y, and Z, and this, you know, they weren't thinking, oh ha ha ha, let me cut down it. You know, it wasn't this evil plan. And so I think if we come at it from that perspective and talk about how humans intersect ecology and how humans have intersect ecology for our existence yeah what role are we going to have during our generation when humans intersect ecology right now we're hikers we're mountain bikers um we you know we we're we're on the river you know we're 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 playing in it a lot more Um, we don't have to survive in nature so to speak like our ancestors did so i think coming at it from that perspective is, mm. is a healthy way to illuminate for people. Yeah. I love that. Uh, you know, I think there's a, a time and a place for venting, right? We all have to do it, blow the steam off a little bit, but I, I really get upset to see how frequently we fall back on that in any sort of, you know, whether it's social, economic or ecological, this, this doom and gloom, everything's bad. These people are evil. And it, it I think it's Merlin Tuttle that says, like, I'd rather make friendships than win battles. And to me, that's where you start to see the common ground. Like, even developers, you see it all the time in Southern Appalachia. It's just the, the mountainsides get carved up for houses. Well, why do people want to live there? Because living in the woods is beautiful, right? And so how do we find some common ground to show them, like, hey, your backyard is part of this? Absolutely. And, you know, and that is the crux of Southern Highlands Reserve and the tour that we give. It's a two and a half hour guided tour. Nice. And it's to show people what they can do with whatever they have, whether it's a postage stamp, some pots on um, a high end, a high rise, you know, like what part can you, what part can you play? What role can you jump into to help facilitate a connection to nature? And of course, we are without a doubt pushing native plants um, because, um, <laughs> you know, it's our, it's our mission. But I also think native plants are they want to be here, yeah. you know. Um, so I think that education piece is really, really important. And th- something happened between like. I guess maybe like our great our grandparents or our great grandparents and our generation or the generation below us, there's this sort of a like push um and you know lots of factors technology yada 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 but um we lost some wisdom yeah yeah uh, certainly well many thousands of years worth of it in some cases but you know i think too what's interesting about places like southern highlands reserve is this sort of intersection of nature and the designed environment and and with your background you can kind of speak to that better than a lot of ecologists can is this idea that you know, people think even now within the native plant movement that it's its own sort of thing over here. Like, don't even get me started on sort of the Facebook group mentality and 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 all that strife. But this idea that it's it's just a chapter. And and really, what's nice is so people can go there, have the tour, look around, see beauty everywhere, and go. And guess what? All of these are indigenous plants. Like, it's beautiful. Absolutely. Yeah. And you know, the to that point. You know, there's the whole boxwood blight epidemic <laughs> yeah. going on. And and it's I mean, it's gotta be crushing some people's souls to come home and find, you know, hundreds of boxwoods just crispy, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but let's try to make some lemonade out of it. And so I when those people are on the tour, when I speak to them, I say, 
let's think about it like this. Let's think about what are the characteristics of that plant that you like? Mm. Is it evergreen? Does it flower? Um, what's the structure? You know, think about that. And then you can start to go out and look at other plants that might be similar in that way. It's not going to be an exact match, but then you can start to really, you know, stretch your stretch yourself and think about what could be there. Right. And it can be this indulgent creative process that's really, you know, the, do whatever you want, cram as many in as you can. Something will figure itself out. But yeah, I, that's one of the few areas where you can really go hog wild and not feel any guilt. I mean, maybe some pocketbook guilt, but, <laughs> you know. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think that I hope that this native plant movement sticks. Yeah. And becomes more and more. It seems to be that way. I attended a symposium in early June, and there was a speaker from New York, another landscape art, a designer, and um, then a researcher from Tennessee that's in the Grasslands Initiative. And the crux of all the presentations were. How can we restore the landscape to mm. something that is sustainable and resilient, which is typically native plants? And how do we do that? Yeah. How do we reintroduce humans to that? Um, and I mean, it was I, I came I came away learning information and sort of like, oh, we're all really doing sort of the same thing, but just little different parts of it. Sure. And it is about education. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's encouraging. And I hope, you know, progress is often slow, but it's it's also never a, a straight line trajectory either. So I, I'm encouraged by the amount of conversations that I see bleeding out beyond these little niche groups online. So that's good. But when you think of the future of what you're trying to do, especially when it comes to the Red Spruce Initiative, like what's just over the horizon? You mentioned needing a greenhouse. You mentioned needing more partners and, and different areas to do this. But like what's What's the goals in the next five, 10 years with this? One of the goals is to plant 50,000, possibly 100,000 red spruce trees nice. back on public land. Um, there are a lot of moving parts with that. Um, we actually hosted um, a leadership field trip with the U.S. Forest Service up at the reserve this summer. And I got to talk to a lot of the, you know, the rangers for the district. And, you know, this is, this is talk about Sudoku. I mean, this is going to be <laughs> a massive undertaking, but if you get the right people to the table and we start to ha start having healthy discussions and think about this in a strategic way, mm -hmm. we will figure out a way to scale it. And that's sort of where we're at right now is figuring out how to scale something of this size to something much, much larger. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's on the horizon. Um, and then I'd really would like to work, um, with other species, hmm. you know, and the reserve would like to work with other species. Um, you know, clearly we do a lot of red spruce, but we've also worked on other projects. We did a wetland restoration project in the Smokies with the national park service. Nice. And then another tree project we worked with with Atlanta Botanical Garden was uh, Terea taxifolia. Excellent. Um, you know, and the only forced migration is that species' only hope. Mm. So, um, you know, that's 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 our 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 niche, and it's really what I think the future holds for us is to continue continue to educate and work with partners and try to do impactful restoration on a landscape scale. That's excellent. Well, I mean, you're starting some really great momentum and momentum can get the ball rolling really quickly. But for those listening, uh, the, you know, the audience tuning in that's fired up wants to do something like where, where are some action points for, for the people listening? Like what can they do to help the mission, not just for the red spruce, but for the ecosystem that is Southern Appalachia? Absolutely. Um, well, Sazri has a website, um, Southern Appalachian Spruce Restoration Initiative. So if you want to get involved with that, um, you can check out um, and learn more than you want on <laughs> uh, spruce and fir forest. Um, 
We, uh, you can volunteer with SASRI. You could also volunteer at the Southern Highlands Reserve um, if you want, if you live in the area and, and, and want to participate. Um, we need citizen scientists to help with the uh, um, monitoring. And if there's any um, research that can be done, we're, we, you know, it's a living laboratory. The Southern mm -hmm. Highlands Reserve is, the forest is, we're looking for um, people that are getting their master's and the PhD to get involved and do some research. Um, you know, we're kind of the boots on the ground practitioners, but we need um, some students to come in and help and, and push that research that, that much further. Um, and then the, the greenhouse, we are, we are in the middle of a capital campaign right now. We got literally unintended some seed money from <laughs> the National Forest Foundation <laughs> through an invited grant process. And we formally launched um, the campaign in July publicly. And our goal um, is $2 million. I'm happy to report we're over halfway there. Wow. People are really getting behind um, this process and, and our role and, and how it can be impactful for the region. Excellent. Well, that's plenty of fodder for the average listener to chime in in one way or another. But Kelly, this has been phenomenal. And I think I speak for everyone listening when I say thank you for all of the efforts you and Southern Highlands Reserve are doing to not only help Red Spruce, but to, like I said, Southern Appalachia in general. It's one of the biodiversity hotspots of North America. And uh, it's good to know it's got a friend in you and your team and all your partners. Thank you so much. We really appreciate um the chance to just sit and talk and, and nerd out on, on red spruce. And, um, and, uh, you know, I, I'll, I'll echo what you said, the, the Southern apps, man, the, the biodiversity down here is, it, it is unbelievable. And yeah. just to be able to live here and to work towards conservation is stream job. Yeah. Yeah, you've won. <laughs> That's great. Well, again, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it. And uh, keep in touch. Any updates, you're welcome back on at any point. Thank you so much. Alrighty. Well, in the meantime, keep fighting the good fight. Will do. Cheers. All right. Phenomenal stuff. Phenomenal work. Very important work. And I thank Kelly for taking time out of what is a very busy schedule to talk with us about it. If you get a chance to go visit the Southern Highlands Reserve, please do. They're doing incredible work, and how great would it be to see that tour from start to finish, the full story, and then go out and enjoy Southern Appalachia. Go drive the Blue Ridge. Hike a spruce fir forest for yourself. It's a magical experience, and it'll bring you closer to all of the efforts that are being done to ensure it stays on the landscape for generations to come. As always, you can find all of the relevant links over in the show notes. Just head on over to indefensiveplants.com slash podcast. That's where I post everything related to every conversation I have on this show. While you're over there, look at all the different ways you can support the show as well. You can pick up a copy of my book, some of our customizable merch or stickers. And as I mentioned at the beginning of the show, you can become a patron over at patreon.com slash plants and really go the extra mile to keep the show up and running. But that is it for me this week. I thank you all for listening. At the very least, make sure you hit that subscribe button and keep checking back in. But until next time, hang in there, stay healthy and get outside if you can. This is your host, Matt, signing out. Adios, everyone.